0: Good morning. What a, what a line. Shouldn't the Christmas experience change us? That's something that I know I can get on board with. This morning, I want to begin with a rhetorical question. And if you haven't played Scrabble in a while, uh, rhetorical means that you don't answer it out loud. I just want you to reflect on it yourself. And that question is this. What feelings do you have about Christmas this year? What feelings do you have about Christmas this year? If you're like me, you've got more than one, but maybe identify one or two or maybe three. You see, for me as a pastor, I have so many feelings about this time of year. We'll start with the good ones. I, the, I have so many traditions that are a part of my life and my family during this time of year. My wife makes this, this raisin cinnamon bread up here. And if you see me in the gym more often in December, that's why I'm not more committed to fitness. I'm more committed to bread and... Uh, And it just fills our house with this amazing smell. I love decorating the tree with my kids and watching them try to break the ornaments throughout the Christmas season. My favorite Christmas movie is Elf. I start watching it in the month of October um, because I'm just so excited. And, uh, And now I live in Arizona's Christmas city, and there's so many traditions in our city around this time of year. I've got so many good feelings about this season. But like many of you, this season for me is also a mixed bag. It's got some tough feelings, some tough memories, some things that I don't like and I don't look forward to. I'm an extroverted people person, but the busyness of the season is just, it's just yuck. Even for me, I mean, I I live to be around people and this season is just, it's too much. The, The rampant, unencumbered consumerism is just completely toxic. And the aftermath of Christmas, it's just too much. You know, the worst leftovers for Christmas, they're not fruitcake or mounds of trash. They're the mountains and mountains of credit card debt that bury families in January and February and lead into a national spike in divorce rate in March. That, that's the worst. And for many of you, this is going to be the first Christmas without someone you love. It's going to be a Christmas that you're going to spend in the hospital as someone you love is, is fighting for their life. It's going to be a time of year where you're going to remember all the things that you lost. You know, the creators of this series that we're starting today said this, They said the time of year when worshiping Jesus should be the easiest is often the hardest. The time of year that's about Jesus, that's about worshiping Jesus, when that should be the easiest time of all is often the hardest. And that's why for many of us we have so many feelings about this time of year. Because it seems like what we want the most is opposed And so in the midst of this mixed bag of feelings and emotions, we're going to start a new course as a church. We're going to begin a new conversation. And that that conversation is called the Advent Conspiracy. See, at the heart of the next four weeks is a question that we've been asking. And that question is, can Christmas still change the world? Now, we would go, yes, we believe that Jesus came and he was born and that changed the world and it's still changing the world, but we're asking, can how we celebrate Christmas, can how we go through this season, can that still change the world? The series is called The Advent Conspiracy, and the word advent, if you don't know, comes from the Latin word adventus, which means coming or arrival. And so in Advent, in this season, we're celebrating and preparing for the coming or the arrival of Jesus. But we're not just remembering the first arrival of Jesus, we're looking ahead to the second coming and the second arrival of Jesus, because each day in this life, we're reminded that this world is not as it should be, that we're in the midst of a broken and flawed and painful reality. And that Jesus promised not just to come, but to return. And then the second word in this series is an interesting one. It's the word conspiracy. And conspiracy means the act of plotting or conspiring, often to do something illegal or harmful. So let's just be clear. I'm not inviting you into an illegal act this time of year. Just in case somebody said, you know, what happened at church yesterday? Well, I got invited into some illegal conspiracies, you know. That would be interesting. Um, But the kind of conspiracy we're inviting you into is an act to push back on what has happened in our culture over a number of years. To push back on the reality that makes it hard to make this season about worshiping Jesus. And so over the next four weeks, we're going to share with you four simple yet radical ideas. Those ideas are these. We want to talk to you about worshiping fully, spending less, giving more, and loving all. Worship fully, spend less, give more, love all. And you may find at some point in this series saying to yourself, or at some point you may send me an email and say, Scott, you're messing with my Christmas. And I will probably reply, then that's probably a good thing. Because I'm convinced that the normal Christmas experience n- no longer works, it's broken. And I don't know about you, but when normal is broken, it's time to embrace something weird. And so we're going to embrace that in this season, and we're going to begin with that theme of worship today. You know, throughout the scriptures, from the book of Genesis to what my friend calls maps, from Genesis to maps, we have a very clear picture, and it's our big idea this morning, that what we worship shapes us. From beginning to end, the scripture reminds us that what we worship ends up shaping us. And you don't even have to be somebody who believes the stories in this book to be true to acknowledge this. You know people in your life where you've watched this play out in their life. You see, if we worship money, then greed will shape us. If we worship love, then romance will shape us. If we worship the approval of others, then insecurity and performance will shape us. And if we worship power and control, then manipulation, control, intimidation will shape us and those around us. What we worship shapes us. I did some research this week and I found the definition of worship in the 1828 edition of Webster's Dictionary. And just so you know, I don't have that copy lying around. Google led me to it. But this is the definition of worship I found and I want to use this morning. Worship is to honor with extravagant love and extreme submission. Worship, to worship someone or something, is to honor with extravagant love and extreme submission. See, I think that's one of the best definitions of worship I've ever encountered. And it isn't just true about God, it's true about all sorts of things and people that we worship, that we give extravagant love and extreme submission to, and we find ourselves being shaped by. See, at its heart, worship really boils down to desire. What we desire most, what we care about, what matters most to us is the thing that we worship. And and the question that I've been thinking about in this season is, what do I want the most? The great scandal of Christmas for Christians is that there's a list of things we want the most, and Jesus is pretty far down that list, if we're honest. During this time of year, we know all of the right answers. If I said, who's the reason for the season? You'd say, Jesus. Who's Christmas really about? Jesus. Jesus. But if I said, what do you want the most, and don't lie, God's watching. (laughs) Truthfully, for many of us, myself included, Jesus isn't nearly at the point in the list we would think he would be. I'm reminded of the words of one of my mentors, Dr. Maxie Birch. He said, Scott, there's a big difference between knowing the right answers and living them. And so many times in this season, we are tempted to nod our heads and go, yep, Mary, Joseph, the shepherds, the magi, I've heard it all, nod, 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 because we know all the right answers. But there is a major gap between knowing the right answers and living them. And what changes the world is not knowing all the right answers. It's living them. And, and the uncomfortable feeling in this season Is often the gap between everything we know and everything we experience. We know what this season is supposed to be about, and then we go to bed at night with our experience being miles and miles away from that. We know that Jesus comes to bring us life and hope and love. And yet many of us battle such tremendous emptiness and depression and darkness in this season. And so my hope in this season is not that you learn more right answers. My hope in this season is we can conspire together to live them because that's what's going to change the world. So this morning, what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk you through what typically we do over four entire weeks. Typically, we look at one person, Joseph one week, Mary one week, the shepherds one week, the magi one week. We're going to cover all of them in some detail today. And what I want to do is I want to share with you four outcomes of worship in the first Christmas and look at how each of these people worshipped because each of these people, each of these groups encountered Jesus and had the same response. They all worshipped. So let's start with Mary. Number one, Mary worshipped Jesus and it led her to sing. Mary worshipped Jesus and it led her to sing. If you don't know the story, the Christmas story, Mary was an insignificant girl living on the backside of nowhere she was probably one of the most insignificant people alive on planet Earth in her day. She was a woman in an oppressed nation who was not of age. She mattered this much. And an angel showed up to Mary and told her that she was highly favored with God. And she said, really? Because I've never experienced anything in my life that would indicate that. And the angel said that she was going to bear a child. And she said, I think I would have remembered the act that led to that. So how is that going to happen? And she said, well, the spirit of God is going to come upon you and you are going to become pregnant and you are going to bear the Messiah. For nothing is impossible with God. And she reflected on this and she was overwhelmed by this. And the reality of being the mother of the son of God, the Messiah, the promised one, it led her to sing. And we call her song, The Magnificat. And it's recorded in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 46, where Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Mary writes, For God has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on until all generations, they will call me blessed. And we're here today fulfilling her words. She goes on to say, for he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. Mary worships in that moment and and she overflows with song. I think of that that great hymn, How Great There Are, where it says, um, my soul praises God. My soul overflows with with wonder for God. But Mary is probably the response of these four that I struggle with the most. And the reason why is I don't sing very well. That's That's an understatement. I sing terribly. My parents were great singers. My dad was in a traveling singing group in college. My mom led worship in our church growing up. Whenever I came into church as a child, I could figure out where my dad was because I was short by listening to his voice, which towered over everyone in the room. And me, well, I sing more like Mumble in Happy Feet. And the good thing is, at least he can dance. Like, I can't do either one. I can't dance and I can't sing. And I don't even sing outside of church. My wife let me sing when our kids were babies, but once they got beyond baby stage, it was in the shower and when she's not around. And so I don't sing very much. I appreciate music, I love listening to carols in this season, but I don't sing them. And as I was reflecting on the story of Mary, I came to a conclusion that singing is not about how we feel, it's about what God has done. We don't sing together on Sunday mornings because all of us are great singers. We don't sing on Sunday mornings because every week we feel like singing We sing because we have an opportunity to respond to what God has done. Some of you are here right now and alive right now and some people didn't think that you were going to be alive last Christmas. Some of you are sitting in church right now and years ago you said lightning would strike a church if you ever walked in the doors. Some of you are sitting here with someone who used to be not able to sit in the same room with you because of what was going on between you. See, we don't sing because all of us have great voices. We sing in response to what God has done, and that's what Mary did. She worshiped God. She honored God with extravagant love and extreme submission, and it led her to sing. It overflowed from within her. And you might have experienced what I've experienced on Sundays when we're together, and there's a song that we all know, and we all begin to sing, and you can feel it right here. You can feel it. See, we're not singing because we all sing good. We're singing because we have something to respond to, which is the goodness and faithfulness of God. And if we're really worshiping God, if we're honoring God with extravagant love and extreme submission, then our hearts will overflow into song. It may not always be beautiful in its sound, but it'll always be true. Mary worshiped God It shaped her. Number two, Joseph worshipped Jesus, and it led him to obey. Joseph's worship of Jesus led him to obedience. See, in this day, marriage didn't happen through dating websites, swiping left or swiping right. It was arranged by parents. And so Joseph and Mary were betrothed. It was an ancient form of engagement through the works of their parents, And in that day, once the betrothal was completed, in the eyes of the law, they were married, except there was a period of time where Joseph would go away and prepare a place for Mary to move into, and during that time, they were to have no contact, especially the kind of contact that would lead to a baby. And so Joseph figures out that Mary is pregnant, and he's got two options in front of him. The most common option is to let people know Mary is pregnant and that it's not him. And then she would be taken outside of the city and people would throw giant rocks at her until she died. That was the law of that day. And no one would have batted an eye if Joseph had done that. But despite their arranged marriage, he loved and cared for Mary and he didn't want this to happen to her. And so he took the second option, which is to send her away while she was pregnant and end their engagement quietly. And an angel came to Joseph and said, you're not going to do that because this is not a baby from an illicit affair. This baby is the act of God and you're going to be the father of this son and you're going to name him Jesus. And you're going to raise the promised one, the Messiah. And I have to tell you that the first time I held my son, who's now five and a half, I felt completely overwhelmed and terrified the nurse that night, as I was trying to swaddle him after changing his diaper for the first time, she said, honey, you're not going to break him. You can, be, you can be more active. But I was terrified. I can't imagine that son being also God. And yet after Joseph heard the words of the angel, we read what he did in Matthew 1, 24, where it says, when Joseph woke up from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife but he knew her not until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. See, the test of our worship is the obedience it produces. The test of our worship is the obedience it produces. And and what happens here on Sundays is great, but I don't test the quality of what happened here by what you tell me in the lobby. I test it with what happens in our lives tomorrow that we heard something and we experienced something and that translated into a practice or a change tomorrow. And for Joseph, his obedience was going to be costly because he didn't go the route that everyone would support. Everyone would support him in having Mary stoned. But if he took her as his wife, the belief would be that he was lying and that they'd broken the covenant and he would be shamed He'd be gossiped about. Everywhere he went, everywhere his mother went, everywhere his father went, there'd be whispers and pointing fingers. And Joseph's obedience cost him, but he was willing to do it. And for us in this season, like Joseph, we live in a cacophony of voices. We have all of these expectations around us. Parents and in-laws and friends and teachers and colleagues and our goal is to keep everybody happy and to meet all the expectations and to never say the worst word to say at Christmas nu, 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 no. And so the question I have for you is what if God calls you to something this Christmas season which feels uncomfortable or unpopular? What if, like Joseph, the response of your worship to God in this season is that God leads you to do something that people don't understand and they don't like? Because for many of us, the worst thing to happen at Christmas is to let someone down. Not to honor God with extravagant love and extreme submission. And so the challenge for us is what is God calling you to do this Christmas season that might be different than you planned for or expect, might be different than what others are thinking, because that's what God often does. He often leads us down a road that people don't understand or comprehend. Joseph worshiped God, and it shaped him, and it led him to obey. Third, let's talk about the shepherds. The shepherds worshipped Jesus and it led to a detour. The shepherds worshipped Jesus, and it led to a detour. The shepherds were very common people. There's some who believe that the, the shepherds were so low in the social class that they literally didn't have a vote. They didn't have even full citizenship in the process of that world. They were outsiders and outcasts, and in the middle of a very boring night shift, they were interrupted by an angel who came to tell them about a baby who'd been born. And they were terrified. The very first words of the shepherds are, do not be afraid. That's what the angel says to them. And they hear about this baby that's born. And as soon as the angels leave, we read what happens to them in Luke 2. Luke writes that when the angels went away from them and into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And so they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. The thing that that caught me this year about the shepherds is that they rushed off to see the miracle. They didn't wait. They didn't go, hey, we'll finish work and then we'll go. No, they embraced this divine interruption. Sure, they had responsibilities. They had stuff to do. They had expectations of other people that were on them. And yet, that mattered less to them than going to see the miracle. I said it earlier, but this is one of the most stressful, chaotic, and full times of year. For many of you, you're never as busy as you are from Thanksgiving to Christmas. You get less sleep, you eat worse. You gain weight, your pulse increases, and the time of year that should be easiest to worship Jesus is about anything other than worshiping Jesus. And some of us, we don't have time for anything this time of year. You'll have conversations over the next week to people and say, hey, we should get together and go, yeah, let's do that in the new year. Hey, we should have coffee. I need to talk to you. Yeah, let's do that in the new year. Here's the problem. How many of us don't have time to see a miracle this year? How many of us, if like the shepherds, God came and said, "Hey, there's a thing I want you to go see. There's a miracle you can be a part of." We go, "That's great, Jesus. I just don't have time. It should have got to me in November when I started spacing my calendar." How many of us have so overcommitted ourselves and said yes to the point that we don't have time this season if God invited us to something because we've said so yes to so many other people's invitations? How many of us don't have time for a miracle? And if we saw a sign this Christmas season that said detour, we would turn the other way. And miss out on what God wants us to see. See, these stories, you may have heard them your whole life, but there are still things within them that you need to hear. There are still things I need to hear. Because throughout this book, God is a God of detours. If you read the stories from Genesis to Maps you'll find that nearly every person ended up somewhere they didn't plan on being. The path to where God wanted them to go was not the path they chose for themselves in the beginning. So maybe this Christmas season, what you're going to need to do is call somebody and say, hey, I know I told you yes, but now I'm telling you no. And you go, but they're not going to like that. And I'm going to break my word. And I, I promised them, yeah, yeah, And right now where you sit, you have no time for God. Which one is worse? Like I said, I'm going to mess with your Christmas this year. Let's talk about the wise men, number four. The wise men worshiped Jesus and it led to great risks. The wise men worshiped Jesus and it led to great risks. Contrary to a uh, popular presentation, if you haven't heard this, I'm sorry to ruin your Christmas, but the wise men were not there when Jesus is born. I know on your mantle it has the camel and the sheep and the shepherds and the wise men and the baby Jesus and Mary and Joseph and your child's GI Joe figure and a Pokemon. And... <laughs> but all of them were not all there at the same time. It's possible that the Magi didn't arrive until the boy was nine or 12 months old. But the shepherds likely lived a great distance away. Scholars believe they lived somewhere between ancient Babylon and Persia, what we now call Baghdad, Iraq, and Tehran, Iran. And they left that area and traveled across the desert to Jerusalem. And that would be a treacherous journey today. It was an even more treacherous journey then. And so seeing a star in the sky, they left and they went to great risk to even get to Jerusalem. Then they went and saw King Herod, which was a pretty bad dude. He had one more strike with Caesar before he'd be fired and killed. And so they went before Caesar to ask where the king was born. You don't go ask a king where the king was born. Just, just for the reference, if you're get an opportunity in the future, it's not a good idea. And yet they did it. And then they went to Jesus And we pick that story up in Matthew chapter 2. It says, after listening to the king, they went on their way and behold the star they'd seen when it rose before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they fell down and they worshiped him. And then they opened their treasures and offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I was reading this story this year and reflecting on the cost of their worship. You know, it actually cost them something to worship Jesus. They went through this great risky journey. They brought these gifts that made them an even greater target. They risked their very lives to get to Jesus. And I felt like God was saying to me, Scott, when's the last time Christmas cost you something? When's the last time Christmas cost you something? And let me me be clear, I'm not talking about money. Because I get for many of you, Christmas is going to cost you money, some of us a lot of money. But many of us spend money so Christmas won't cost us anything. You know you can do that, right? You can spend money on some things so you don't have to spend yourself. You're just going to buy that person a gift card on the way to the party so you can think about what you're actually going to get them. You give some money to a cause so you don't have to give your time. You donate money to charity so that you don't have to show people love and gentleness and charity. When's the last time Christmas cost you something? Let's go back to our definition of worship. We said worship is to honor with extravagant love and extreme submission. And so in light of that, the test of our worship at Christmas time is not how many carols we sing or how many services we hit. It's did we honor God with extravagant love and extreme submission. And none of us like that word submission because we're Americans. And we submit to no one. Well, if we're going to worship God this season, I think it's going to have to cost us something. And so what I want to do today is I want to begin this new experience of Christmas by being very clear. I don't think our problems with Christmas are spending problems. I don't think it's Target's fault or Walmart's fault or the people who say Happy Holidays is fault. Our Christmas problem is a worship problem. It's a heart problem. And saying Merry Christmas instead of Happy Holidays is not going to fix it. Moving the sales off of Thanksgiving and back to Black Friday is not going to fix it. It's going to take some deep work inside ourselves to recognize that we want something more than we want Jesus that we're worshiping and being shaped by something other than Jesus, and we're spending ourselves on worship of something other than Jesus. And what we shape, what we worship, it shapes us. So before I share some next steps, for some of you, you, wanna, you might want to dig deeper. There's a book that was written by three guys who founded this thing called The Advent Conspiracy 11 years ago. Their names are Rick McKinley, Greg Holder, and Chris C. And their book that details this journey through the Advent Conspiracy that is informing a lot of what we're doing in this month is available on Amazon, and you can pick it up there. They just restocked it this week with a lot of copies, and we weren't able to get them here for today, but if if you want to grab one, you can do that. Before we close, I want to share some next steps with you, and those are on the back of your handout. The first thing I want to challenge you this morning is I want to challenge you to honestly inventory what you want most this Christmas. Now, let's be clear. I'm not asking you to make a Christmas list. I'm not asking you to make an Amazon list and share it on Facebook and say, hey guys, this is what I want most this Christmas. I want you to be honest between you and God and say, what do I really want? And, and if Jesus is not at the top of that list and, or not near that, I want to challenge you to be honest about that because you have nothing to be gained by lying. No one's going to see that list. That's between you and God. God. And if you can't be honest before God about the true state of your heart, you're never going to experience a different kind of Christmas. So, number one, honestly inventory what you want the most. Number two, I want you to think about and identify what worshiping Christmas, what worshiping Jesus might look like for you this Christmas. Identify what worshiping Jesus might look like for you this Christmas. Is it singing like Mary? Is it obedience like Joseph? Is it a detour like the shepherds? Is it great risk or cost like the wise men? Or is it something else entirely? I'm leaving this blank because I'm leaving space for Jesus to lead you into something that is as unique as you are yourself. Number three, I want you to think about what would it mean for you to listen to God's direction this Christmas for you and your family? I'll give you a heads up. Next week, I'm going to put a challenge in front of us as a church and as individuals. But before we do that, I want you to take time to involve those around you and begin praying about what God wants you to do. Because one of the things I've learned is that if you're going to involve somebody else in the consequences of something, you should give them a voice in the decision. And so as a family, if you're thinking about changing your Christmas experience, I'm just telling you, you can mitigate the pushback if you invite them in in the beginning. And so say, hey, as a family, how should we celebrate Christmas this year? How should we make sure that worship is at the heart of it? And begin listening for God together. And then finally, and this may be the most hard thing I've told you all morning, I want you to research how much money you and your family spent on Christmas last year. I didn't get any clapping to that one. Um, And this may take some work. And you may not be able to find every dollar and penny, but I think you'd be surprised. And so I want you to go back into your checkbook or your online banking, however you spend. And I'm not asking you to send this to me or tell anybody this. I just want you to go back and figure that out. Because that'll be a part of what we talk about next week. So let's pray. God, we thank you for this new journey we're beginning today. And we thank you for the reminder that at the end of the day, Christmas is all about worship. And we pray that over these days that you might stir something new in us. That this season wouldn't be about all the commitments on our calendar. It wouldn't be about all the purchases we feel we need to make. It wouldn't be about all the things we need to prepare for the activities. It wouldn't be about the stress or the anxiety or the traffic or the anger or the expectations. It would be about you. And I can't confess a sin for anybody else in this room. I can just confess mine that there have been many Christmases where what I wanted the most was not you. And Jesus, I don't want this Christmas to follow that pattern. I want my experience this year to fuel my desire for you because you will last longer than any gift I get this year. I don't need a warranty for you. I don't need a return policy for you. I don't need to worry about you not meeting my expectations because there is a God-shaped void in my soul that only you can fill. And so I pray that this season, for me and my friends in this room, would be a time where we return our focus to you, that we honor you with extravagant love and extreme submission, and that that worship would shape us in this season. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.